0: Hello and welcome to The Shift, the weekly podcast for nurses and midwives, proudly presented by the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association. This is Katrina Lee back on the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the last few episodes from ICE, Where To From Here. We had some excellent speakers at the forum and today we have more fantastic speakers coming to you from our recent aged care forum. Joanne Russell is today's guest speaker. She is a nurse practitioner who specialises in the care of the older person. She currently works in residential care and focuses on the clinical outcomes and quality of life for residents. Joanne is also currently completing a postgraduate diploma in palliative care and aged care with the Flinders University and is a staunch advocate of the rn 24/7 campaign that the Nurses and Midwives Association has been running. Today she talks about palliative care in aged care, the meaning of life and why we do what we do. Here she is, Joanne Russell.
1: Thank you, Stella. Hi, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, Okay, so I was approached to um, present today about three or four days before I went on a five week holiday. And I've never been on a five-week holiday before. And I was, I was kind of anticipating it so much. And I think I'd almost lost touch with reality. And <laughs> um, I, was, I was really off in the clouds. And, and Stella said, what would you like to talk about? I said, I'll talk about the meaning of life. <laughs> <laughs> Such a big visionary um, message, and coming on the the back of um, Annie's presentation, where we're all feeling quite angry about what we see and the inequality and the and the lack of being able to provide care. I suppose it's quite a, a jump for you to now um, get back into an altruistic perspective and say, well, what could we dream about? What would we what would we like to be able to provide? provide for people, but that's what I'd like you to be able to do if you can do that kind of mental gymnastics um, to frame yourself back into considering the people we look after. What are their hopes and dreams? Um, What is the meaning of life for them, for us? Why do we do what we do? Why do they do what they do? Why do families do what they do? And how does that all work in terms of palliative care and aged care? So within the next hour, I'm going to try and present that for you. Um, Now, I did have this on my mind as I was travelling overseas. I went to Europe and I was constantly thinking about this huge topic I'd sent myself, what is the meaning of life? Um, And so I've actually um, used some photos from my trip to talk about the meaning of life and and what that can be for various people. Um, So this is just a, a slide that describes the aims of the session, which is reflecting on the meaning of life. Palliative care um, in aged care. Where, where are we up to in palliative care in Australia? Uh, what does it look like in aged care? And what do we? Why do we do what we do from a resident's perspective, a family perspective, and a staff perspective? Um, so the meaning of life. Um, one definition said the extent to which people comprehend, make sense of, or see significance in their lives, accompanied by the degree to which they perceive themselves to have a purpose, mission or overarching aim in life. And I think it's relevant for people as they come into aged care because frequently we're looking after people that are actually processing this. They're facing death and they're actually trying to make sense of this. We're also looking after families who are trying to find meaning in losing their loved ones and perhaps for ourselves as well. I was looking for some kind of light, light-hearted cartoon to start with and I, and I got led into uh, Charlie Brown and never realised how philosophical Snoopy is um, who lies on his um, house and wonders where is he going, what is he doing and what is the meaning of life um, and then discovers meaning in food and... Um, all right, so but the meaning of life is, is impacted by our culture, our experiences, our family and friends, our socioeconomic status, and it's highly individual. These are just some pictures to kind of lead you on this bit of a journey. This is Pompeii. Uh, Pompeii is an interesting place because uh, in one particular day in 79 AD, it was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And we visited there and saw people literally kind of frozen in time. And what what really shocked me, though, was um, this, the the civilization of the place that was very similar to where we live. The people were doing the same things we're doing now. So 2,000 years ago, life hasn't changed really that dramatically. When you get down to what we do, what we consider life is about: getting a bigger house, having nicer artwork, you know, getting to ju- to your job, travelling, having holidays on islands, all of those things were part of their lives. It's quite amazing when you look at that. Um, Some of these, a couple of these shots are just from another holiday I took because I wanted to also include that perspective of um, different cultures, so um, ideologies, people having grown up with regimes or different political um, understanding and how that can impact upon their experience of life and their meaning of life. Um, This is the Entombed Warriors in Xi'an, which is actually a burial tomb, and I thought it was relevant because um, this emperor believed that to have people around him, a vast army, would protect him in the afterlife. Originally, he actually wanted to have live people buried with him. (laughs) Someone managed to convince him that terracotta warriors would suffice, which was a good idea. My son took some of these photos. And this is a Ferrari not far down from St Peter's Basilica. And I think a lot of people get attracted to a flashy car or owning something. Um, That's another shot from Asia. Obviously a Buddhist, uh, a grotto in um, Laoyan and meaningful for the people that were there, greatly meaningful. Many people died building these grottos. alternative spiritual realities for people, of course. And this is in St Peter's Basilica. Mm. Food. (laughs) Um, Food is undoubtedly the meaning of life for many people, and I think that's probably evident in our um, growing levels of obesity. Um, Certainly gives a lot of pleasure, and I think a lot of meaning can be found in gathering people around eating food. That might be just a humble pizza, but, of course, it's representative of any, anything you might choose to eat and gelato. Um, the Eiffel Tower. So meaning of life found in human accomplishment, um, great endeavours where you're the first or the best or the tallest. People find meaning in, in doing those things. Huh. This is a guy um, on the hill in Montmartre in um, Paris, and it's representative of physical endeavour. So, uh, I don't know if you can see there. Wait, is this a pointer? Oh, that's not a pointer. Um, anyway, so can you see on his left foot a, b- a ball? He's actually He actually scaled up that post, juggling the ball on his feet. And as you can see, he's almost um, perpendicular to the, to the pole, um, juggling that foot on the end of his... It's quite incredible. I mean, just to get up the pole would be an endeavour for me. <laughs> um, this is a picture of Auschwitz. I visited Auschwitz and um, it's it's representative of a history of incarceration or oppression that people who come into aged care may have experienced and how that shapes their meaning, being a survivor or um, how that's impacted on their family. Perhaps they have no family because of trauma that they've been through. Um, perhaps there's other trauma that people have been through and how does that shape their meaning. This is a picture of um, the Palace of Versailles and it's representative of, of that kind of desire to own the biggest and the best. Um, the Louis, the kings of, of France in, in this period of time from the 1500s, 1600s were kind of outrageous, and the expansion of this property was something like 67 kilometres, including gardens, and that is gold, and it's gold all along the top of the roofs as well. Um, And I suppose a lot of us can get lost in that dream to accumulate and to build wealth. Family, that's my son, and animals can play a big part in people's lives and their meaning. Um, this is um, me and my husband sitting on the end of a pont on um, in, on a lake in Switzerland, and it's symbolic of, I guess, family connection, companionship, and peacefulness. Um, that's that's a picture from Disneyland in Paris of um, of R two who is it C three P O, um, and I guess there's all those people in the audience that, or maybe who come into our facilities too they are fascinated with movies or mass culture or technology Um, Mona Lisa so fine art that's the same lake and that's Freddie Mercury and my son had a particular pilgrimage to go and see that because he, um, he has him as one of his idols and I suppose we all have idols people that we hold in high esteem and for some of us that can actually add meaning to our lives, it can shape Um, our our understanding of life. A winery, so drinking, um, having a great time together and solitude and nature and the planet which um, fighting for a cause is something that really shapes a lot of people's lives too. So that's supposed to give you a bit of a background and a feel for where people come from when they're coming to live in aged care. They bring with them this huge scope, and this is just my experience of one trip, but of course, people's lives are huge. The problem is that we try and put all of that large capacity into a single bedroom space, maybe not even all of the space in one room. And then we're trying to allow these people to process their life, and their approaching death. And as we'll see as I look at the snapshot of, of ageing in Australia, people are dying in aged care. So what is the meaning of death? Well, it's different for everybody, of course. Some see it as a final journey, a passage to another place, um, as an everlasting spirit, um, a resting place. Uh, some see it as an opportunity for new life. Maybe it's seen as the greatest enemy it's the end or nothingness but in in true kind of definition sense it's the it's the end of life it's the end of vital functions but the meaning is beyond a definition and for each person it will be different so what does this all have to do with aged care well we'll have a look now at palliative care in australia and and then more specifically the aged care situation so Palliative care is defined as an approach that improves the quality of life for patients and their families facing the problems associated with life-threatening illness through the prevention and relief of suffering. And this is done by the means of early identification, impeccable assessment, treatment of pain and other problems, physical, psychosocial and spiritual. Where did palliative care f- come from? Well it's, it's obviously, it's a, it's a historical concept. That existed way before Cicely uh, Saunders, but um, uh, it comes from a linguistic t- uh, root of, um, of as hospitality, and it comes back to a place of shelter and rest for weary or ill travellers on a long journey. But Dame Cicely Saunders was an, a remarkable woman um, who was actually a nurse, a doctor, and a social worker. <laughs> Um, and she started, up, she started up St. Christopher's Hospice in the 60s in England. Um, and it was specifically for people suffering from terminal illness and mostly cancer. That has led to a, a very common conception of palliative care being for people who have cancer. But as we understand in aged care, um, people die from many more things than cancer. The thing is, has have palliative care services transitioned from focusing or providing service to people specifically with cancer onto chronic illness and dementia. I I know that that's one of their goals, but I don't think they've really got there yet. Um, This is a graph which I've got a more specific slide next to show the causes of death by age group in Australia. It's Australian Institute of Health and Welfare Statistics. Now, the top of the slide's younger people, so age 1 and under, and then 1 to 14, 15 to 24, 25 to 44, 45 to 64, and then we've got our um, age bracket where most of our care is directed. And you can see how things change quite dramatically in that 65 to 84 age group by the next slide. So we're dealing with people dying in the 65 to to 84 age bracket of coronary heart disease. In fact, that takes number one in all older people. Then um, in those younger people of the, of the older people, you've got cancer, lung cancer, cerebrovascular disease, COPD, and then dementia and Alzheimer's starts to come in. But in the next two um, demographics, 85 and older, um, dementia is already the second cause of dying and then cerebral vascular disease, and then the chronic diseases, COPD and heart failure. Um, For the very old, the fifth cause of death is influenza and pneumonia. And we know that that's usually because of their dependency um, related to their chronic illnesses. So it's usually a secondary cause of death. Um, Okay, so 51% of deaths that occurred in that 2011 to 2012 group were among people died in a hospital. I'm sure that's kind of not what people want. We'll have a look at a slide in a minute of where people would prefer to die. But um, it does show us why, I suppose, New South Wales Health or maybe the health system in general is, is quite worried about looking after people that are dying and how can they shift some of that care somewhere else, so some of the pressure behind that Um, And also an interesting figure is the the number of people who died in Australia, which was 147,678. So let's have a look at the next slide. The the median age at death was 78.4 for for males and 84.6 for females. There are discrepancies, as we know, for people living in rural and remote communities, and their death rates are higher. Um, There's also a 10-year age gap, in life, experience, life expectancy between Indigenous people um, and non-Indigenous people. Um, oh. So I'll, I'll come back. There's another slide coming up where it talks about the number of people that die in aged care. So um, just having a look now at specialists... Specialised Palliative Care Services. So what is the difference between palliative care and specialist palliative care? Well, specialist palliative care is where you've got someone who is under the direction of a specialist physician providing specialist palliative care with specialist knowledge. The government is currently trying to frame that everybody in Australia has access to, to palliative care. But in reality, because it's not specialised palliative care, I it's difficult to kind of argue that. And in some ways to say that a registered nurse or a GP with no specialist training in palliative care can provide palliative care is, is, a, is a, it's a bit of a loose jump to me. I'm not really, I don't really see it. But this report shows um, what the activities are of specialist palliative care. So there were 600, and f- 600 sorry, 61,596 palliative care hospitalisations in 2012. Um, and 13.42% of patients who died were admitted um, palliative care patients. Okay, so 13% of patients were admitted as palliative care or under the care of palliative care specifically, but 50% of people are dying in hospital. So you can see that obviously not everybody's receiving specialist palliative care, and probably they don't need to either, but just so that we understand what is the difference between specialist palliative care. Um, And 56% of palliative care hospitalisation focus on cancer. So remembering back to what people die of, um, they're still more than half of the time focusing on people who have cancer. So it is very specialised and it's still towards that particular group. Um, In residential aged care, even though, as I I said, you'll see how many people are dying in residential aged care, only 5.6% of permanent residential aged care residents were assessed as requiring specialist palliative care. So a very small percentage of our residents get to see any kind of specialist. Um, Right, this is specialist services in New South Wales. So you can see that small olive chunk in the larger picture of the state has been blown up and that is kind of the area... Central Coast, mountains, and down a little bit. And you can see the concentration of the specialist care services in that area. And then have a look where the ticks are apart from that area in the other parts of the state, and that's where we've got specialist palliative care. So, in other words, specialist palliative care is not available to everybody. So, where do people want to die? Well, uh, 70% 70 of people say they want to die at home. Um, but, and 10% want to die in a hospice, I think 1% want to die in a nursing home. Okay, but in reality, 54, 51, some of these statistics are taken from different years, um, are dying in hospital, 16% dying at home, 20% dying in a hospice, um, and 10% dying in a nursing home. Right, so now let's look at more specifically aged care. so 7.8% of the Australian population aged 65 and over, um, or 270,000 people, were in residential care at some point in the 2013 to 2014 financial year. Right, that means it, it's, it's influenced by respite. And, and a further 83,000 people received home care. So um, that lower graph is the length of stay that people are there. Um, the highest category is one to two years, which is 19%. But as you can see, it's quite evenly spread out. Um, but I know that if you add up, say, for example, the categories to under two years, you've got... Uh, I think it's... About, 50, about half of people stay in residential care less than two years. OK. OK. There were 56,420 separations or people leaving aged care in 2010 to 2011 Um, and 91% of those, which is 51,342, were due to death. So remember we had 50% 50 of the population dying in hospital? a third of the population, because remember there are 147,000 people died in a particular year, we've got 51,000 people dying in aged care. So a third of the people in Australia are dying in aged care. But only 5.6% of our residents get any kind of specialist palliative care, which puts a huge burden on us to look after them well. And that's why we need to, we need to develop new ways to look after them. We need to upskill and improve our services. And as I said, this is going to take a little bit of a, a jump for you to say to realise this when we've just heard how difficult it is to do basic things like changing pads. But we can still look to where we need to get to, and that can motivate us to get on board campaigns, I suppose. So so how does the residential aged care structure compare to the wider health service for palliative care? Well, I think the length of stay really impacts our perceptions of goals of care. Because we have people for longer, we can t- kind of lose focus um, on the fact that people are dying. We don't really see ourselves as a palliative care service. I remember back in 2004 when the, the guidelines for a palliative approach first came out and the government announced that everybody that came into aged care was palliative. I was indignant. I'm like, that's a terrible ageist thing to say. How can they say that? But now I understand the three trajectories where we're looking at people who are frail, are not expected to live for, you know, more than a couple of years perhaps to trajectory B where people are not, not surprised if, we, if they die in the next six months and trajectory C, final days of life. But Because we look after people day in, day out, we get to know them very well, we get to know their families, we can become attached to them, and it it does change our perception of what we do. Um, The general pact. Practitioner is really central to the care model of residential aged care and we're really kind of um, at the the mercy, I suppose, of the general practitioner and the quality of that person. Whereas in the wider community, if a person's not really happy with their health care provider, they'll just go and see someone else. It's just not that easy in residential aged care to change your doctor. If you go and speak to the staff, say, we'd like to change your doctor, the the staff are supposed to not tell you who's better than anyone else. It's supposed to be against... um, our principles, but how do people actually find out and how do they even find another doctor who 's willing to come and see their 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 family so um, that's that 's really different I suppose in our in our context is that we just don 't have the same choice we 're not happy with what 's happening we can go and see someone else but in aged care those people are kind of at the mercy of the service that 's provided um, there 's a lack of specialist involvement in chronic health conditions often people have progressed beyond Um, the intervention of that specialist physician, or perhaps they've been too frail or too sick to go and see them and the family have resigned themselves to care by the GP. So a lot of those conditions still require specialist care and it is beyond the expertise of their GP to manage those conditions, but they simply can't access them. And so we don't have that specialist input anymore into the medical care of, of the residents. We can be isolated from experts, all kinds of experts that are in a hospital. If you've, if you've ever been working in a hospital and then gone into aged care, it's like going into a, a, a desert um, where you, uh, maybe you become the expert and you know you're not the expert, but you're the only person that can perhaps shed some light. You have to read up, um, but it's, it's an, a very isolated environment. Um, We, in aged care, are often allocated a lesser priority, and you'll hear this many times from referral centres. If you want specialist palliative care involvement, if you have a particularly complex resident's needs and you refer to that service and ring up and say, Where are they? Uh, Where are you? You're not here yet. Oh, um, well, we had to deprioritise you. We know that she's in aged care, so she's all right, and we've gone to the person that's in the community that's in dire straits. Of of course, they have limited resources, and and they're um, reacting to those, but it can lead to us being quite um, isolated further. Um, There's an expectation that a residential aged care facility has nurses and and people to look after this person, so they're expected to cope with certain level of things. Even if we send people to hospital, sometimes they just come straight back with nothing done, no intelligent plan um, in place. Um, And there's little or no access to community health service. And I always think that's quite unfair. Where a person lives in the community, they can access uh, an OT that comes or a wound specialist or a diabetic specialist. But in residential aged care, that's all supposed to be included in the funding that we receive. um, And it leaves us quite isolated. So what are the challenges for aged care? Well, you guys have have just been talking about that and... and, um, and I'll just run through these quickly, but obviously time is huge pressure. If, if you've got an average of 12 minutes to look after a resident for, or oh, was it eight minutes, for a resident for an entire shift, um, when you think about a complex resident who's dying, it's, it's just laughable. And of course you're going to look after that person and the other people are going to lose their eight minutes. Um, Individual preferences and needs. So if you cast your mind back to my photos, which was supposed to bring you to that kind of wide expanse of who's coming in here, everybody is so different. Everybody has individual needs. And you are trying to look after that huge variation and put them all into a routine that you have to maintain in order to get work done. It's just very difficult. Staffing levels and mix has been covered. Um, There are limited resources, but there are unlimited expectations. Families' expectations are going up as resources and staffing are going down, and that is not possible to maintain. How do we look after the people who care? So how do we look after the staff, um, AINs, RNs, even managers? Who are dealing with this incredible pressure. Um, There is poor media portrayal, and as we go out into the community and tell our stories, there's going to be further scrutiny of people saying, it's it's terrible what happens in aged care. It's terrible. Um, It's shocking. They shouldn't even close them down, you know. Um, And we work under this, uh, I guess, negative image of aged care. We have very unpredictable trajectory of illness. We'll look at trajectories in a moment, but um, chronic illness trajectories are very difficult to predict and we have, I'm sure you guys have too, many stories of residents that are going to die, but then they don't die. And then they're going to die and then they don't die. And that builds all, all kinds of problems for staff looking after people who begin to believe this person's invincible, no longer see the incredible frailty for residents themselves who will not consider discussing death or what their preferences are or anything, because they think they're invincible, they've, they've got through many things in the past, and their families who get kind of hard to, to seeing the changes and, and can't see um, the, final, the final days of their loved one, you know, they're just not ready for it. Um, there are cultural expectations about death, um, and the focus of care is about creating a home rather than an acute environment. So we find um, sometimes people are not willing to do advanced care planning in the nursing home, but they go to the hospital and they've done advanced care planning in the first 10 minutes of landing in the place. The doctors or the nurses at that acute facility may think, well, this person was quite ready to do an advanced care plan, but they weren't ready to do it before a crisis. So that can be another um, problem for us. This is a slide that I picked up from another presentation I've done, and I thought, isn't it interesting? Um, This was more about palliative care and oncology. And this is the old concept of palliative care versus the new concept. The old concept in palliative care was um, that curative care was in place, and then at a certain point, um, the oncologist would announce to the patient, I'm sorry, but we can't offer you any more aggressive treatment, and we now need to move you towards palliative care. more modern concept of palliative care was introduced by Lynn Adamson in 2003, where a palliative care referral is made at the beginning of diagnosis. Um, that's a, it's just an introduction and a small relationship is formed, which is built as the d- disease progresses. And then towards the end stage, it's completely palliative care and, and um, the curative care is phased out. So I think that kind of relates, actually, to what we've done in aged care, too, where I was talking about that um, change in philosophy, where all of our people are on some kind of palliative care journey, and we introduce them to the concept early on in their visit or in their stay with us. Some strategies for adaptation, um, new models of care. You guys are the ones on on the ground, and perhaps you can come up with better ways of doing things so that we can use those to suggest to decision makers. How else could we do this? What are we doing that is really a waste of time? What can we get the best use of our time? How can we do that? What do we need to let go of? What do we need to take hold of? What do we need to learn? Um, Educational um, resources, new roles such as mine. So as a nurse practitioner, I can prescribe medications. Um, I can refer to specialists, I can um, ask for tests and things, and my role is really about improving the the resident's journey so that they don't have to go out to get services. They can have services within the home, they can stay in their place of comfort and where people who know them and know their needs um, can look after them. So things like that. Advanced care planning, where people are given the opportunity to tell us what they really want so that we don't lose focus and go giving people all kinds of interventions that they never really wanted. It's just what their alternate decision makers come up with because they're feeling so overwhelmed by what's happened. Um, And lobbying, which is about joining the campaigns. These are some of the resources that you can use. Um, it's a bit of a double-edged double-edged sword, I find, because there are so many resources out there, you can almost get lost in the number of them. You've got um, com- things that seem like they're competing, like um, uh, the, the Peacock and Hetty um, websites with all of their resources and care search. Um, Alzheimer's Australia has their own set of things. The, the government's residential palliative aged care um Palliative Approach Toolkit, the, palli- the PEPA um, op- op- educational opportunity for registered nurses to go and experience palliative care in a, in a working palliative care unit, and then you've got Decision Assist to assist with advanced care planning, decision-making. So, yeah, there are a lot of resources, but they can be almost overwhelming sometimes, and I think a lot of times staff don't actually know what's out there So, um, why do we do what we do? Just got to check the time. Okay, a resident's perspective. Um, Resident coming in um, is dealing with multiple losses. Sometimes they may have lost their home, they may have lost their spouse, they may have lost their physical functioning, they've lost their health perhaps. Um, So, layers and layers of loss as they come into our facilities. It can be sometimes a very rapid transition. Perhaps there's been a precipitating um, incident, such as a fall, that's the final straw. And the family say, no, enough, we can't do any more. Perhaps a health service has come in and said, oh, this place is terrible, you've lost all this weight, You're not, there's nothing in your fridge, you can't look after yourself anymore." And within the space of three weeks, they're taken to hospital, assessed and moved into aged care. So people are experiencing rapid tra- transition and what does that lead to Very poor adaptation people don't people need time to adapt to change. Um, they may have a very poor understanding of their of their health. perhaps that's because of cognitive impairment perhaps it's because they don't speak the same language as the people that are telling them what's happened or it's not their first language or maybe it's cultural and they have a cultural disconnect with what we are imposing upon them as, as a, a solution. To their needs, and they're, they're still back at saying, I'm fine, I can live at home. Um, they're often afraid of dying, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. Um, the impact of cognitive impairment so, do they have the ability to process information, environment, and reality? Um, how does it, in fact, impact on their um, family relationships? And how does it impact on their perception of meaning? Do you remember how we we looked at those photos and we considered what is the meaning of life? How does having dementia impact on your meaning of life? Do you go back to when you were 20 and what the meaning of life was then? Um, Or do you just find a lot of difficulty understanding what's happening now? So obviously just by that list you can see a resident's perspective and why they do what they do is able to be understood. I was going to say more about how older people's attitudes towards dying compares with younger people, but to be truthful, there's not a lot of difference. Um, we've, I did, did learn by looking at studies that younger people um, in the past were thought to not consider death in any great detail, but that's actually not true. We, we consider death throughout the lifespan. Um, but it does say that it's a greatly um, heterogeneous Um, set of viewpoints, and so every person should be given the opportunity to discuss what they specifically feel about their life and their meaning and what they would like to happen for the rest of their days. So that leads me to patient-directed care, which is a bit of a buzzword, Um, and I've heard some people talk about it with cynicism to say, we haven't even achieved patient-centred care, how can we possibly move on to patient-directed care? Um, At the end of the day, um, they're not really that different, although I think that patient-directed care is kind of more... uh, uh, I think of it as a person sitting in a boat. So instead of being the centre of something, they're actually on a journey, and we get into the boat with them. We want to establish what are their goals, um, also including the wider context of their family, considering what bereavement they're facing, what losses they've had, and using advanced care plans as a tool to write down a plan for the future so that we can assure, ensure that their boat goes to where they wanted to get to. Um. Alright, so talking about dying, as I said, um, who wants to talk about dying? Not really anybody. It's not really anybody's favourite topic of conversation. Um, the 21-year-old saying it's, it's such a long way off and even the 50-year-old the same. Um, and for some reason, even people that are in their 80s and 90s are, are not terribly keen either. If they're not, if they're possibly keen, their families might not be keen because they don't want to let them go. I developed a, a poster um, last year, um, and it says, "What are the what, how would, it's, it's a bucket list concept? How would you spend your last 1,000 days if you had the choice?" Um, because uh, the average length of stay, according to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, was 1,000 days in residential care. In our residential care environment, it's actually 800 days. But uh, about 25% of people get less than three months. So the idea was um, allowing people to complete their life journey and consider what would they want to do with their last 1,000 days? How many days would they want to spend in hospital What would they say to people if they had the chance and where would they like to go? And um, perhaps that leads into the patient-directed care as well, Um, thinking about the amount of people that are dying in aged care. We are looking after a third of the people that die each year and um, assisting them to have a meaningful death and a completion of their life. There are some reasons why um, doctors don't like talking about dying, Um, and I'll read out some of those here. Um, They have a low confidence in their ability to prognosticate correctly, and that's actually shown in evidence as well. In fact, doctors are often more likely to over prognosticate, like give more life expectancy to a person. Um, They have a fear of destroying hope. They have a fear of provoking uh, emotional distress a fear of being blamed, a fear of confronting their own emotions, a fear of confronting death, burnout and compassion fatigue, so they just have switched off. Um, And they may have an overestimation of patient understanding, so they don't bother to explain things again and again because they think that the patient already understands. Perhaps we have some of those um, characteristics as well. Um, Patient factors, in terms of not wanting to talk about dying, Uh, they have an ambiguous attitude to knowing their prognosis. So they kind of want to know, but they don't want to know. Um, They may experience denial, distress. Um, They may prefer to entrust someone else with those details. Um, They may fear causing offence by questioning many times and and taking someone's time. Um, They may fear losing hope. And um, there may be cultural expectations that that is not done. I know that um, I was with some African students recently. They were saying that um, there's a cultural expectation um, when people are dying in Africa of wailing to to show that you're very sad. Um, And if you don't wail and you don't look very, very sad when someone's died, you may be actually implicated in the cause of their death. That's obviously a kind of comes from the voodoo um, roots. Um, So cultural expectations of death are still very much part of many societies and probably part of ours more than we realise. So that's some of the reasons why people don't like talking about death. Um, So this is another slide that I took out of a cancer um, a cancer presentation, but it it surprised me how um, these slides were really relevant to aged care, um, because there was a stressing in the guidelines to not assume patients understand everything about their illness and, um, and also to not assume that people want to be told everything. And we don't have the right to tell people more than they want to know. We just need to understand that some people don't want to know. And it's important to remember that in advanced care planning. Um, So, and also to encourage emotional expression, respond with empathy to allow people to talk about how they're feeling. Um, So choices people make at the end of their life, again another slide from this cancer which as I was flicking through I was like wow I'd never really kind of realised this but this study was talking about um, a, a roughly equal group of people with cancer, without cancer, and the choices they would make in various circumstances. And some of the people were healthcare professionals that didn't have cancer, and some were not. Um, And um, it showed that 43% of patients accepted intensive treatment when the chance of relief was very small. And we're talking about um, really nasty chemotherapy when they had little to no chance of survival. So 43%. And that showed me that... People will sometimes grasp at straws. And we face this concept in aged care. And we face this concept when we send people to hospital and we hear back from EDs, why did they send that person? They're so old they shouldn't they shouldn't send them, you know, that's inappropriate. But the desire to keep living is very strong in people. And I think it's very ageist of us as a society to say those people shouldn't have that kind of care if that's the kind of care they want. It's It's happening in oncology, and does anybody ever say, well, that's inappropriate. Why did that 50-year-old come to hospital to have that intervention? No. We still provide that. So um, what's the family perspective, and why do they do what they do? So um, they may may be burdened with the alternate decision-making Um, role, perhaps they are not educationally prepared or aware, perhaps they've never encountered someone dying and yet we treat them like they're an expert. We know a lot about dying because we deal with it every day and we can come with that kind of accepting this is normal and let's just talk about dying, whereas it may be the very first time that person's ever been in that position. They may feel guilt because they haven't been able to provide the care their loved one and they've, and they've admitted them to aged care and there's all those associated things like um, Annie shared about the man on the plane. Um, they, they may be encountering bereavement They may be encountering bereavement for the loss of their parent before they've even died. Perhaps they've got dementia, and as a lot of people express, it's kind of like an early death before it happens. Or perhaps there's been other things. They've lost their other parent, or they've lost someone else, or there's something else. So people are often dealing with multi-level events in their life. They can have a lack of understanding, and they can have a lack of exposure to or fear of death and dying. So... um, Denial. I'm not sure if you've got patients like this, but we certainly do. Um, there's death by the, death, by the, by the bed. Um, the person's hooked up to all the machines and ready to die and says, I, I would like a second opinion. Um, so, death anxiety um, is something that's been described by different theorists. Freud came up with the denial theory. Um, he suggested that people use defence mechanisms to avoid the reality of their own mortality and the accompanying fears and anxieties about death. Um, Erickson, um, in his eight stages, had the final stage of human development, um, integrity versus despair, and posited that individuals experience either an enlightened sense of meaningful and satisfying acceptance of their quality of their lived life or a painful realisation of life devoid of meaning or purpose. See, I wasn't completely off the rail when I started talking about meaning of life because that's what people are dealing with psychologically. Um, and existentialists ex- um, emphasise an intertwining of the search for meaning and self actualization frameworks for understanding an individual's experience of coming to terms with their own death. So um, another um, theorist uh, or another study that was done in, in 1994 talked about Um, death acceptance on three different spectrums. Neutral neutral acceptance refers to viewing death as a natural part of life and individuals who hold to a neutral attitude towards death perceive death as an inevitable part of life that should not be feared or welcomed. Um, And these people are actually shown to have the best ability to cope with death. The second dimension, approach acceptance, is related to religiosity. A person with an approach acceptance attitude regards death as the beginning of a happy afterlife. And the third dimension, escape acceptance, refers to the view of death as an escape from suffering that results from intolerable living conditions. Individuals who hold an escape attitude towards death may believe that death will bring an end to suffering and perceive death as an attractive alternative to life but those are the people that are least able to process their life. Um, And then there's another um, theory called terror management theory. And um, according to terror management theory, the angst associated with the thought of one's own mortality is universal. And to deal with it, people try to rationalise death and suppress the thought when reminded of their own mortality. Ironically, a process of rebounding increases the accessibility of the suppressed thoughts and causes heightened subconscious activation of death thoughts, a state known as mortality salience or thinking about death. Um, Terror management theory claims that humans have developed two psychological structures to address unconscious concerns with death, um, the cultural worldview and self-esteem. So, reminders of death increase the need for faith in one's cultural worldview and consequently increase the individual's commitment to these worldviews. And B, the high self-esteem um, can buffer the anxiety caused by the thoughts of death and therefore reducing the need to defend worldviews. So. I know that 's a little bit theoretical but it does it does bear thinking about because we are looking after a lot of people that are contemplating death and perhaps further understanding of how people think about death and process death process meaning of life will actually help them to look after will actually help us to look after them um, so how do we enable families to accept approaching death well one thing I often use is one thing that I often use is um, the illness trajectory model. You can see there the blue line is the traditional cancer model. The red dotted line is the chronic illness. And the uh, green line is cognitive impairment dementia. Um, each of those has their own particular needs. But if you can find the where, where the person is on the trajectory, you can often use this as a pictorial to explain to people, well, um, this is why you've seen your mum get sick. We thought she was not well. We thought she wasn't going to make it. And then she improved. But you can see she didn't really come back to where she was before. And she's on this kind of journey. And we think she's kind of around about here at the moment. What do you think? And um, that can help people to understand and process the, the gradual deterioration of a family member and help them to accept what's happening. Um, do any of you guys use the surprise question? Would you be surprised um, if this person was... Dead within the next six months. Uh, it's not. It's not a great question to use with family, but um, it's a very useful. Um, it's a very useful question to use in your teams to identify who's changing. That might prompt you to have a conversation with families and say, "Look, we've we've actually identified that your family member's really changing. What do you think? Have you seen any changes? Um, and uh, and give them a chance to talk about it. So. How do we support people who have difficulty accepting their prognosis? Um, So they might put a a high relationship with their their, um, health professional. Perhaps you can get them in touch with their their GP to have a bit of a chat to them. Um, We need to treat them as a whole person and include their family if, if that's what they would like. We need to confirm their understanding of their illness and the meaning of that. And we need to listen to what they have to say. It's important that we maintain hope. Um, So we work from an assumption that there is never a time when nothing can be done. We never use that term. There's nothing more we can do for you. There's plenty more we can do for you. We're going to look after you. We're going to make sure you're comfortable. We're going to make sure we look after your symptoms. We're going to look after your mouth and and keep you so you don't have pressure injuries. And uh, we can make your mouth moist. You might not be able to swallow or your family member might not be able to swallow, but we can keep them comfortable. So we emphasise hope-giving aspects of, this, of the discussion, um, maximising length and the quality of life. We can find a balance between truth-telling and nurturing hope. Um, and we can, pr- we can find hope as people from a variety of sources. So why, is we, why do we as nurses do what we do? Well, we believe that people have value. Um, it's the privilege of spending the final part of a person's life. It's almost a sacred, it's almost a sacred um, act, I believe. Some deaths, maybe they're, they're more unremarkable than others. There will be some that will mark in your mind as a, as a very sacred thing that you've been part of. Um, and we find meaning of life through our work. There's no photos of working in my holiday because I wasn't at work, but uh, a large part of my meaning of life comes from what I do and perhaps that's true for some of you as well. So use that as a motivation to keep doing what you do. Um, Some of the things that we do that are negative are caused by the things we've already set out before. Um, So the role of nurses, we have a unique position in the multidisciplinary team We are the ones that are close to the person all the time. We don't come in, offer a little bit of care and then leave. We are usually around that person. We are most able to recognise deterioration. And we've got to strive to do that because although we see people on a day-to-day basis who don't change very much each day and they're with us for a long time, we are the best positioned to recognise that deterioration. We are the best able to assess symptoms and that's what palliative care is all about. Um, and we are the best at evaluating whether the symptom management strategies are working. It's important that we look after ourselves because if we don't look after ourselves, we obviously can't look after anybody else, and we bring out of our wellspring to look after other people. Um, We need to have (laughs) self-awareness. Um, We need to process our own feelings of anger, guilt, anxiety, and a great way to do that is through journaling or through reflective writing of your own. You'll be surprised what you can get out. Just follow a simple format like, what happened? Who was there? Why did this happen? What could we do better? Use that as a simple format. Go home. uh, You had a difficult day. Write just a few lines about each one of those things. You'll be amazed what comes out and how you can learn and grow. Debrief with your colleagues, develop strong collaborative relationships, pursue communication skill training. Um, It's been shown that death, dying and bereavement training assists you with your coping as well. Advanced care planning assists staff adjustments to bereavement. And finding meaning in life is a protective factor for you as well. And that's it.
2: Um, five minutes, do you want to take a few questions? Sure. Yeah, five or six minutes to take some questions. This one over there, Matt.
1: Yes. And, oh, God. I'm in a public hospital and I've been nursing 30 years, as I'm sure nearly everybody here has. And we had a death on the ward the other day and the new grad cried and cried and cried
2: and cried. And I'd forgotten that myself. I'd forgotten what it's like to be young and get to know someone even very briefly
1: and even though we had palliated this person and we all knew it was heading and I thought that was quite a wake-up call for actually all of us that wanting to comfort her but thinking like gosh, it's really just become such a part of our work life that we simply didn't see it the way she saw it. So true. Put your hand up if you remember the first time someone died on a nursing shift. Yes, it's 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 a really memorable um, event. And I remember for me, the first person, someone uh, who died when I was looking after them, I was an AIN training as a registered nurse. I was 18 and it was a morning shift and this poor person had dementia and was, you know, severely affected um, and basically was was completely immobile and requiring care for all parts of her life. And in some ways now I would see her death as a mercy. But I cried like a baby when she died. And I remember the the director of nursing was there looking at me like I had three heads. Why are you crying? (laughs) It's amazing, yeah. We lose that perspective. But there are some still that touch. Any other questions?
2: Just what you were saying about um, the ageism about being treated is that example As I sent an elderly gentleman off to the hospital because he had not for resus but mm. for active treatment. Mm. He arrived in CAS. I got the phone call, why have you sent this person here? They're not for resus. I said they're not for euthanasia either, so would you please um, assess him and treat him and we're happy to have him back, mm. yeah.
1: There's a, there's a profound lack of understanding between the aged care environment and the acute environment and having worked in both, it's, it's really sad. I think there's so much pressure on us, we're almost shifting blame. So uh, the, aged, the aged care environment may try and ascribe some blame to the acute environment and the acute environment certainly ascribes a lot of blame to the aged care environment without understanding. The, the different demands of each of each different one. I send people all the time to, to hospital with a specific plan and say, this is what we want to achieve. Um, we can take them back. And it all gets lost in translation. It's quite heartbreaking. Um, and we're very frequently sending people to hospital now. They just get sent straight back with no intervention. So it's actually giving me a lot of argument for my role because I'm, I'm able to say to family members, look, we can send this person to hospital, they'll probably spend four hours on a trolley, and then we won't get what we need. If you wait till the next day, I can put this plan in place, we can do this, we can get this specialist in, we can, we can do whatever. And, and, and it's becoming easier and easier to sell because often families have had a negative experience the, the time before. Someone was actually evicted from one of the EDs recently, it was in the paper.
2: I'd like to just make comment, I, I work in a, a, an acute care facility, yeah. I've worked in an ED department, I currently work in uh, anaesthetic and recovery, yeah. so I'm seeing this happen. Yeah. I, think, I think a bit of communication is of great help, because from the acute side, in an emergency department, mm. the comment, and this raises the 24-7, is we have registered nurses in these facilities, can't they do it? Can't they give out IV antibiotics? Can't they? Can't they? Can't they? There is little knowledge from the acute side mm. what actually happens in aged care facilities and how they work. Yeah. And I can say that just not from the nursing perspective but also from the medical perspective because we have staff specialists. Remembering if you, if you if you think about ED departments what are, what are ED departments? Her emergency departments. They deal with all the trauma and all the, the high-level acute stuff. Yep. And we're talking about people who have been educated that way. Their education is towards that. Mm-hmm. It's not really to do with the aged care and what's required. So I think communication, education is the key, particularly with the nurse, the triage nurse, the nurses on the floor, the CNCs, CNSs, all those groups of people and also include medicine because I truly believe that they do, all of us, have little understanding of how aged care facilities work and what, what care and what is available, what knowledge is out there because we all think There is an understanding that, oh, they're registered nurses, can't they do
1: A, B, and C? I visit many people on wards, of course, in aged care, um, and there's not only um, variability of what the acute sector understands about aged care, but there's a lot of variability of practitioners in aged care and a lot of variability between facilities. So you may get one facility that staff sits care very differently, um, that can create a different expectation from the hospital. Of course, they're not expected to understand 50 different models of care. So how do we actually overcome this? I visit residents quite often in units, um, and half of my time is spent, as GPs complain, finding the person, finding out what's wrong with them, and then you get five different reports of of how ill they are, raging from they need to go to hospital now to oh they're fine, <laughs> they've just did, they've just been to the concert and how do you actually work out communication is is a huge key uh, moving forward of course yeah that's it yes that's thank it. you very much
2: thank you thanks very much and.
0: So there you have it. That was Jo Russell on palliative care in aged care. You can link to her presentation slides here through our website at www.nswnma.asn.au. Thanks once again for listening today and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also send any questions or feedback you might have to the shift podcast at nswnma.asn.au. Next week on the shift, we've got one more from our aged care forum with Professor Lynn Chernaweth. See you then.